Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. It's your big gun wielding, badass, vigilante, justice loving bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your fun tech whiz and weapons armorer supreme, the inventor of the battle van and the ballistic hunting knife, Micro Jake. Well, now your name is Brains Blown Out. Boop, 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 guns, guns, guns. Ah! Ah, he's killing the guy. Actually, he doesn't really kill micro trip that it, that often, but the Garth not Ennis, that uh, often. <laughs> run I was reading, uh, they were very at odds. But either way, um, pew pew pew, grenade grenade, explosion, big explosion, the Vietnam War, uh, ear necklace. Um, uh, we're doing that's right. We're doing the Punisher. <laughs> Uh, hold on, wait. This is my imp- this is my summation of the Punisher. Uh, listen, you're not supposed to do what I do. I'm broken, and I know even though I kill a million bad guys, there's going to be a million more to take their place. I'm damaged. I'm damned. I am a lost cause. But also, it's cool and it's fun, and <laughs> I look really awesome, and I have eight million dollars worth of cool pew pew toys. And but don't but don't be but I'm not the hero. But also, I always win and am cool. Well, it was definitely cool for me back in fourth grade, Jake, when oh, I was super yeah. into the Punisher. I loved Punisher Warzone. I was like, it was perfect timing for me. I think I've gushed in a similar fashion about Ghost Rider. Mm-hmm. And this was the same thing. Like, those were my two dudes. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, okay with the other ones. Fine. Batman, Spider-Man, I guess, whatever. X-Men, whatever. But like. Punisher was where it was at. That guy was for real. There was like actual blood. There was like almost curses. <laughs> they would do the, you know, the at symbol and the numbers, the pound sign and whatever and do that. And, 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 but I knew what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was just so much grittier and so much harder, hard nosed and brutal. And I loved the Punisher growing up as, as a young, youngling. And uh, I even got one of those dumbass Punisher armory uh, <laughs> fucking Oh, issues. like one of those, yeah, yeah, that's just like, here's cool drawings of guns, kids. Yes, and I regretted that purchase because it was very boring. I mean, how else were you going to get exact schematics of the battle van? So bizarre. Super cool. It is, I love that the Punisher, like the... The Batmobile is to Batman as the battle van, just a paneled van with guns sticking out the front. And now it's become a horrific reality that we face today. Just a bunch of fun little Punishers running around, just trying to mix it up. That's fun. God, it is. (laughs) Which we're going to get into, by the way. We're not going to shy away from the fact that this, the Punisher's skull has been uh, co-opted to mean something entirely different and... 
terrifying in our uh, in our current dystopia. So the thing about the Punisher that gets me going cuz I'm okay, we're talking about Frank Castle, we're talking about the uh, man in black and white spandex or a cool black trench coat and a skull t-shirt depending on what generation you first fell in love with this character. Uh and the whole point is he is solidly part of the Marvel universe. He is hanging out in New York City with Daredevil, with Spider-Man. He's been uh had his ass kicked by Captain America. He like hangs out, he fights the Kingpin. He uh you know points an Uzi at Dr. Octopus at some point. Like he is part of this fantastical escapist world and yet he like somehow manifests like this deeper reality of violence whenever he shows up. Yes. Like Spider-Man can fight a million dudes with, like, a million, like, generic street toughs who all have, like, the same six-shooter, you know, thirty-eight special revolver, and he webs them up, or he fights, like, Dr. Octopus, and he fights Electro, but then the Punisher shows up, and all of a sudden, like, those guns are real. Bullets yeah. have consequences. Death is a, death. A actual real war was fought in. Yeah. <laughs> a oh, yeah, man yeah. was driven insane by it, and now he's here to murder you, you... Seemingly unkillable superhero. Yeah. Like, it's it just, it's this weird avatar for an entire, like, swath of dark human experience that finds expression through this slick haired morning Italian father. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was the, the case back in the day. The character got really popular. I think, I love that uh, this, this gave me a lot of perspective in terms of. What drives superheroes in terms of popularity? And this one has a really dark basis to it, which is that crime got really bad and really real in the 1980s. And they needed a character to reflect, like, the real stuff going on because the streets became a very scary place to be, especially in New York City. It just got completely out of hand with cartels and the mob and... All these different uh, criminal organizations that that they ha- they said at some point we need someone who really kills these these issues because like Spidey might not be able to just web up the the fucking dr- Colombian drug cartel like well, he like he wishes he could you know like uh, <laughs> Batman came of came of became you know popular in the 1930s and that's when we had like. All these weird gangster things happening, you know, that's where organized crime and uh, the proliferation of like cheap mass produced handguns and all these things kind of like the 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 sudden fear. Well, it's it's a primal human fear that, uh, you know, yes, there's natural disasters. Yes, there's war. Yes, there's disease. Yes, there's all these things that like you have some semblance of control over. You can buy uh, heavy windows if you're scared of hurricanes. You can. Uh, move to uh, a, a peaceful country, but like the idea that just some rando with a gun can just come in and just destroy you—that like a serial killer can just like beat down your door and just murder your family without any like before the police can show up—is just hell like this, yeah. It's just this <laughs> universal gross thing that right. like society invents the its own fantasy of like. Yeah, well, you know, if I had eight years of ninja training and millions of dollars, I would be safe from that. And in this one, it's like, if I just, if I didn't have all these pesky ethics uh, and head-to-toe super Kevlar. As you were saying before we started this podcast, and all that pesky paperwork that goes along with killing people uh, professionally, that I, man, we could really get some things done. 
It also, uh, I, uh, we have to, uh, there's no way to yuck yuck this up, but like the reality of violence in America where, you know, we send people overseas to do insanely violent things, like horrifically, intensely violent things to other people. And then like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect the war back, the people back home that the people back home kind of just like it's just this thing you see on the news. It's not real. But for millions of people that were sent over there, it is real. And now they just have to like live amongst us. You know, that tension has to get resolved. You know, the Punisher is an avatar of violence and everything it represents uh, good in the way, you know, taping a grenade to a toilet and then forcing a man to sit on it and have his asshole blown out in a funny way is good. <laughs> and bad, the way that uh, we try and, you know, that the we make becoming an unfeeling avatar of death somehow a virtue or somehow something to look right. up to right. is bad. So it's just, it's all these intense things that superhero comics are about, like, kind of escaping from. You know, you, the good guys win. There's always a better way. Truth, justice, and the American way. Like, goodness. But then there's just this one weird dude in his white vinyl little booty boots. Just, like, tossing a wrench in all that shit that makes him so fascinating. And that, I think, is the appeal of the Punisher. Also... Underneath all this, you know, we talk about it all the time and because it's just it is such a fundamental part of comics history. But like with EC Comics, we talked about essentially pre Comics Code Authority. The Punisher is a big representation, I think, of us coming out of the Comics Code Authority and mm -hmm. moving away from that and getting back to the nitty gritty. Right. And that makes so much sense because. Comics Code Authority essentially removed all the cr true crime and the horror comics and all these splashy things. So the industry really moved a lot more towards superheroes because they could tell the fun stories that could grab kids' attentions without all the gore and the violence. This is the perfect combo of the two. This is true crime meets superhero. And, and as a way to say, hey, we're back. You know, we can do the stuff again <laughs> for the kids and uh, for sure. And then you have this other element to it. You have two more elements to it. So you've got what the Punisher was in the 90s. Then you have what the Punisher was, uh, how the Punisher was revitalized by Garth Ennis mm -hmm. after he became huge off of Preacher, which, of course, if you want to learn more about Garth Ennis and Preacher, go to our Preacher episode to get a good foundation on that. But... We will be talking about the Ennis Punisher run for sure, uh, and that that is so fundamental. And then you have the film, the history in film and television, which has its own bananas <laughs> plotline because especially of Warzone. Mm. Warzone is just this incredible gem that rests within the whole, and maybe we can tie it all together, Jake. I don't mm. know how. It seems like it's just this... It seems like just like the Punisher is telling the story of the Vietnam War and crime in America in the 80s, Punisher and media is definitely very representative of where we were at, when we were at it, or in Warzone's case, this like bizarre just happening that that is maybe the best comic book movie of all time, according to some. <laughs> because it's so batshit insane and uh, uh, wonderfully so. What it's thrillingly violent in the most scream with laughter ways. It's 
I watched uh, both the 2004 Thomas Jane Punisher for this episode, and I watched Punisher Warzone, along with several of our patrons as part of the Sunday study group. Go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew to find out how you can sit in with us while we uh, study for the future week's topics, along with you guys, our wonderful patrons. Anyway, uh, I watched both, and holy shit, those two, night and day in two approaches, how you can make a superhero movie, a comic book movie. It is a crazy... A juxtaposition of two different storytelling modes because oh my god if the Punisher 2004 movie disappeared like tomorrow no one would even notice it is just discount supermarket vanilla ice cream with like twice as much air fluffed into it while Punisher Warzone is just the most decadent dark chocolate lava cake you've ever had in your entire life <laughs> it is just it is just oozing with flavor my friend it's pretty special, and I'm so happy that we had an excuse to uh, relish it, uh, for sure. Relish it this past week, but uh, oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, in regards to the comics, I think the I think the Garth Ennis like legendary run between Punisher and you know normal Punisher and Punisher Max is like pretty legendary. Uh, which did you like more? Which did you kind of resonate more with? Kind of the early 2000 Welcome Back Frank kind of thing, or like? The gritty old gnarled like trench coat uh, Punisher kind of the bear. I mean, now I can appreciate the Innis run more, but Mm -hmm. back in the I think nostalgia factor wise, for sure, it's the OG Punisher because I was legit into Punisher when I was super young. Right. But I think I think what now like the first thing I wanted to go and read was some Innis Punisher Max stuff because I read Welcome Back Frank. Not too long. I mean, or, or no, it was, it was, I God, I can't remember when I read that run. But either way, I read that initial twelve issue run. Loved it. I was thirsty for more preacher by the mm-hmm. time I got to that one. So I was like so ready for Innes's style, the uber violence, the 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 ridiculous over the top villains that just scream for you to hate them. Manucci you know? is so good. Yeah, so good. That I remember still, I didn't even pick that one up in preparation for this episode, but you saying that, I remember exactly what that character looks like, and I just remember that I absolutely hate her. That's, <laughs> that's all I remember. I just hate her. I don't know what else it is, but either way, uh, yeah, so what about you, Jake? Uh, having read, I read, uh, the Circle of Blood miniseries, which was kind of the first Punisher solo story that really, like, broke barriers and kind of gave the character the kind of cachet that he has. But that was back in the 80s, and it's kind of hokey now. But it was, you know, even, like, simple, it was interesting to see, like, how the character was breaking all these barriers back in the day. And I found that kind of fascinating. Mm. I kind of like Welcome Back Frank, like, uh, non-Max Ennis Punisher more than... Max Punisher, just because I'm always a fan of, like, the more restraints you have, the more creative you have to be. Yeah. As much as I love all these, like, just the these sheer boundary pushes that uh, Ennis can do, Barracuda is a fucking amazing villain. That whole fake Enron story in Max is truly remarkable, but that, like, 12-issue run, the Welcome Back Frank run, was just so endearing. I hadn't read it before. And like even the that like in the first page they reference like how shitty and crazy Marvel Comics had gotten in the late nineties. He's just like, Yeah, I went to heaven. Uh Angels told me to be a spirit of like revenge. Didn't care for it, now I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> I what what's cool about the Max stuff that I was enjoying was they definitely do the Vietnam stuff. Oh, and oh, kinda oh god, give Punisher you that Born. Really, 
Yeah, yeah, the Born stuff was on under the max line. And that was really enjoyable to read through to get this just very ugly portrayal. I, and what's crazy is the Preacher also has that, like, Vietnam backs. <laughs> I mean, you can really tie the two together really easily between Preacher and Punisher. You also have the war trade for, Pun- for Preacher. Mm. And they do a similar thing of, like, they just hammer home how ugly Vietnam was and how just ridiculously awful the situation was for those soldiers and how violent and how traumatized they were. But it's fun to see Frank Castle, like, actually, you know, snap and turn into this thing and make it and and do it in a way that's like, this is like a superhero origin story that has nothing to do with radioactivity or anything like that. And still, and still we feel like he got bit by the spider at a point in that, in that born arc yeah, yeah you know and you're like okay cool this is the motivate like this is where it happened this is how it went down obviously you have the motivation of the, his family getting murdered by the mob but pre that when he just became a killer before he went home either way and how that sets in motion uh, essentially mm-hmm. him paying the price of his family but either way uh let's get into it here we go. The synopsis for this whole thing, now that we are 16, almost 17 minutes into the episode. A character published by Marvel Comics, created by writer Jerry Conway and artists John Romita Sr. and Ross Andrew, that first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man number 129. He is a Sicilian-American vigilante who, driven by the deaths of his wife and two children at the hands of the mob, decides to establish a one-man war on crime. He has no superpowers, just a proficiency in hand-to-hand combat, marksmanship, and guerrilla warfare that he obtained in the Vietnam War. How do you like that, Jake? Did I do it? That was pretty good. Uh, I read the <laughs> I read that issue, and it's deep in like hardcore, uh, angsty Spider Man, Gwen Stacy, Norman Osborn, Harry Osborn, the Jackal mm-hmm. kind of the Jackal. <laughs> yeah, that late seventies uh, melodrama Spider Man, but it, thrown into the mix is this standout character in stark black and white. Which, when you think about like. Basically, every superhero and supervillain is colorful. Spider-Man mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, I don't have to M. Night Shyamalan and talk about how, you know, heroes are mostly primary colors, villains are mostly secondary colors, and mm. it, they're supposed to jump off the page, and they're supposed to, you know, represent all these primordial, collective, unconscious uh, things about humanity. But then, just in the middle of all this, is this blob of black and white holding a gun. And he seems, like, at once, just, like, He's like the shark in Jaws. He's it feels immediately different. He feels like a threat, and they establish a that he has a military history. B that he goes by his own very strict code of ethics that's outside of both heroes and villains. And C that he is a tactician who prepares for all these sorts of contingencies and has a arsenal of weapons and does not go into any fight like without having a, a dead-eyed battle plan ready to go into it. They establish that he doesn't have superpowers, but they also establish that he can get punched square in the temple by a superpowered man and just be like, ooh, that stung. He <laughs> <laughs> could take a beating for sure. He, th- I, I swear to God, like, it's he's just Wolverine without the healing factor. Yeah, he really is just Wolverine without the healing factor. And I mean, they even, and they play off of each other pretty well, too. And, oh, yeah. and there are different instances as well. Well, let's talk about the man who created the Punisher before we got to that issue is him taking over the Amazing Spider-Man at 19 years old from the original writer, which was Stan Lee. I don't know how this is able to happen, but 
He must have had some kind of spunk in the office to get that gig. Or Either way, he worked to see, or he actually worked for pastrami sandwiches. Those are the two <laughs> yeah, ways or to that, get Or he literally worked for his own feet. They 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 just convinced him that that his feet would disappear if he didn't write another issue of Spider Man. Stan that Lee was what is it was very like in- convincing. I would <laughs> I would work for my own feet if he had told me that was the case. That's what things were like in the early 70s. But either way, Jerry Conway, born in Brooklyn, New York in 1952. He was an avid comics reader at an early age. He wrote a letter that made it into the letters page of Fantastic Four number 50 at 13 years old. That's he was already super obsessed. At just 16, he ends up selling a six and a half page horror story to DC Comics, which was published in the anthology House of Secrets number 81 in 1969. He sold several stories to the series, as well as to Marvel's Chamber of Darkness and Tower of Shadows, as well as DC's All-Star Western and Super DC Giants. So in other words, a bunch of Western, horror, you name it, anthology series. He's getting little stories published that way. Conway said, I've been writing for DC's comics for two or three years, but to paraphrase the joke about the actor's ambitions to be a director, what I really wanted to do was write superheroes, specifically Marvel heroes. Through friends, I'd become acquainted with Roy Thomas, who was Stan Lee's right-hand man at the time, and Roy offered me a shot at the Marvel writing test, which we've talked about so many numerous times in this episode. Uh, Stan the man series. and Roy the boy constantly coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yes, uh, Stan wasn't impressed, but Roy liked what I did and began throwing some short assignments my way, including scripting over his pilot on an early Kazar story. Do you even Kazar? It's essentially just Marvel's Tarzan. Yeah, it's just a jungle I'd, man. I d- I didn't even have a one. I didn't even remember specifically, but like, there's like eight jungle people that all have dumb names like that in the Marvel yeah. universe. He then he he after that he is doing Daredevil, Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, big big names. He's so young. He's like eighteen. <laughs> With Stan Lee, Roy Thomas, and artist uh, Gray Morrow, he created and wrote the first story for the character Man Thing. A humanoid swamp monster that looks just like Swamp Thing. Either way, he then got to do, uh, or either way, he, uh, at just 19 years old, ends up taking over on The Amazing Spider-Man for Stan Lee, as I mentioned before. And his run lasts from 1972 to 1975, which included the major event that was the death of Gwen Stacy. Conway said... Precocity is a well-known curse. Most of the pressure I felt as a younger writer was self-imposed. I wanted to be accepted by other writers and artists as an equal, which put me in some awkward situations, pretending to be more mature than I was emotionally and professionally. As it happened, I was pretty good at faking a maturity I didn't have, which had advantages and, obviously, some disadvantages. I think people often forgot how young I was and expected me to perform at a level that was actually beyond me. The result was I was pretty stressed for most of my early career as a writer, and I often felt like I had no idea what I was doing, which was true. I wrote instinctively and from the gut, which uh, I loved that quote just because I am just sitting here being like, how does a 19-year-old fucking get a job writing for Spider-Man as the main writer? Like, it just blows me away. So I think it was all just fake confidence. So that's my lesson for you guys, Uh, especially if you're that age, just completely phone it just just not phone it in but just totally bullshit your way to the highest ranks dude just act like you deserve it which is something i'm very bad at doing either way let's get to the creation of the punisher created as an adversary to spider-man as we just talked about 
uh, but was heavily inspired by the book series The Executioner, written by Don Pendleton. Jake, did you read any? This <laughs> is, I could, I still can't wrap my head around this, because you say, oh, written by Don Pendleton, but like, the first 29 books were written by Don Pendleton, and the subsequent 500? <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, because there are, what, 453 installments of this book. It came out monthly. I didn't, I thought... I had in my head he was some insane machine man who just wrote really bad, but very a lot. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, I, 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 this is a total blind spot in my knowledge. And yeah, there's an entire genre fiction empire built around this one character named Mac Dolan, who is basically the Punisher in that he came back from Vietnam only to find that his family had been murdered by the mob. Although the story behind that is actually a little more complicated. It's like his dad killed his family because his sister wanted, had to like take up prostitution uh, because of loan shark debts. Because of loan shark debt. Which I, which I, which, you know, I say that's more on the, on your dad. For killing your family, I understand right. that like finance. Yes, the the chain of events has some mob connection, but whatever. But uh, in the subsequent decades, this character has evolved to like the head of its own like secret society of elite uh, murder agents that take on everything from organized crime to terrorism to uh, you know Interpol to all these things that you know it's it's just this. It's almost a framing device. Just within this world, within this publisher, there's just all these offshoots, off characters. It's like its own comic book universe based around pissed off guy who came back from Vietnam and murders a bunch of crooks. Yes, 100%. Conway said, I was fascinated by the Don Pendleton executioner character, which was fairly popular at the time. And I wanted to do something that was inspired by that, although not, to my mind, a copy of it. So the character was in, I mean, it's such a copy of it, but whatever. The character was initially a pawn, as we said, for Jackal. Jackal is this, uh, essentially, is a scientist who fused with the genes of a jackal. And you can look up what a jackal looks like. I always have to look up what a jackal looks like. It's like the a fox jackal, dog. The character does not look like the jackal. The jackal, the character, looks like green beast. It's just the yeah. beast, but green. More infamously, I feel like uh, most people will know about the Jackal because he is the prime instigator of the Clone Saga, which ah. deserves um, I, which we've gone into in our multi-part uh, Spider-Man series. Oofy doof, I do not like the Jackal specifically because of his involvement with the Clone Saga. <laughs> it should also be noted that around this time, uh, you know, this is... Uh, 1974 is when this issue came out. In 1972, the novels uh, First Blood and Death Wish also came out, inspiring, mm. uh, you know, uh, the Charles Bronson movies and yeah. Sylvester Stallone's Rambo series. So course, the idea... Again, v- veterans of war becoming vigilante justice givers. Uh, <laughs> fighting back against a system that refuses to acknowledge what they've been put through and what... Uh, you know, the, the, this violent world uh, requires, so to right. speak. Conway said, in the 70s, when I was writing comics at DC and Marvel, I made it a practice to sketch my own ideas for the costumes of new characters, heroes and villains, which I offered to the artists as a crude suggestion representing the image I had in mind. I had done that with the Punisher at Marvel. So he claims he is the initial very rough sketch. He brings in this drawing but uh, the Death's Head skull is very tiny on one breast. It's art director John Romita Sr. who blew the skull up to cover the whole chest. 
And here's how Stan Lee actually came up with the character's name in his own words, Jake. Oh, wait, Stan Lee took credit Stan for Lee something? Stan Lee super came up with it, dude, and this is his quote about it. <laughs> uh, uh, Jerry Conway was writing a script, and he wanted a character that would turn out to be a hero later on. And he came up with the name The Assassin. And I mentioned that I didn't think we could ever have a comic book where the hero would be called The Assassin, because there's just too much of a negative connotation to that word. Unlike the Punisher? Okay. And I remembered that. Some time ago, I had had a relatively unimportant character who was one of Galactus's robots, and I had called him the Punisher. And it seemed to me that that was a good name for the character Jerry wanted to write. So I said, why not call him the Punisher? And since I was the editor, uh, Jerry said, okay. <laughs> so there you go. It was definitely Stan Lee who came up with the character's name. I'm saying that very tongue-in-cheek because he takes credit for a lot of stuff that's not necessarily credit for him to take. Either way, go on, Jake. The Assassin, it would not have been as popular of a character. It's very generic. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's just that multiple characters within the Marvel Universe is an assassin. It doesn't speak on the cycle of vengeance and the innate cruelty because uh, it really is at a certain, multiple times, uh, you know, it's kind of established that Frank Castle does not actually have a plan in how what he's doing is going to save people or bring about any kind of peace. He is in it just because he likes killing people. I th what was uh, it's like in Welcome Back, Frank, when uh, Joan is like taking care of him in that like tenement apartment with uh, Spacker Dave and um, Bumpo, the fat man, <laughs> and she's like, yes. "So why do you kill? So why do you kill bad guys?" And he's like, "I hate them." And she was like, oh, I was hoping you'd say something like to protect the nice people. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Punisher has that like, no, it's not even about justice. It is literally yeah. I just want to make people hurt. Yeah. And and I can justify it on these people because they're bad. It's, it's, yeah, I think that is more the nuanced situation there with him. But either way. Also, I just think the name Punisher, puh, it has that thud to it when you say it it's so much like assassin doesn't really get but punisher he's gonna come in with his big guns he's gonna mess you, up. you know what i mean it just it, the name just feels like it fits a lot better uh Either john way, ramita mm -hmm. senior uh also did work on refining the costumes for a lot of marvel characters at the time including wolverine uh you can see sketches of that he was instrumental in kind of making the the design language of marvel heroes for that era and he came up with the very clever idea of having the Punisher's skull teeth be little ammo, narrow pockets. Yeah. Maybe one of the first in a kind of, uh, one of the primary, uh, I'd say, vanguards of the pouch aesthetic that we had grown <laughs> to love in the 90s at that time. And to, before uh, the leading up to Pouch Man uh, in the future. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Either way, Amazing Spider-Man number 129 comes out. And Punisher is a surprise hit, and that surprised everyone, including Conway. And so that's why the Punisher comes back to the Amazing Spider-Man run and teams up with heroes such as Captain America and Nightcrawler. He also contrasted well with Frank Miller's Daredevil's more liberal views. It was a good foil for him as a hero. A good foil kind of for everybody as a hero, because everybody... And really, I mean, and the real trick here is that everyone doesn't kill... Because then the villain can come back time and time again, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like, that's why, really, the Batman and the Joker never actually kill each other, you know? It's just because they want them to have to fight each other over and over again. Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. 
Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If I remember the chronology correctly, one of Frank Miller's, like, earliest gigs at Marvel was doing a annual for Amazing Spider-Man that he didn't write, but it it was a Punisher tie-in story where Punisher did his classic, uh, I, I do what it needs to be done. These people are animals and I am, I'm culling the rabbit or whatever. And like <laughs> the Punisher's design really flows well with Frank Miller's own kind of design. Like it's a yeah. lot of black silhouettes. It's a lot of stark shadows, deep inks. And his own kind of edgy take on justice kind of flowed together. So when it was time for him to take over Daredevil, one of the first things he did was bring in the Punisher a bunch as a good foil for Daredevil. For sure. And also another place he was able to thrive is the black and white magazine Marvel Preview, which was printed without the approval of the Comics Code Authority, which allowed for many more murder kills Mm. to go down. And this popularity builds and builds, and finally he gets a series of his own. A very young Stephen Grant was encouraged by his roommate to a production department employee at Marvel to pitch some stories over there, one of which was a Punisher comic. Later, Grant got a job at Marvel to write under his friend and editor Roger Stern and push for a Punisher miniseries, which he was able to get off the ground under a new editor named Carl Potts alongside artist Mike Zeck. Now, this was actually a very difficult run to get off the ground. The company had a lot of issues with the protagonist that actually killed in cold blood, and they had to really get a lot of pushback for it. But they began to change their minds as throughout the 80s, as I mentioned before, violent crime began to spike. It was a lot more normalized to turn on the news and see some drug cartel that decapitated a boy and put a bunch of, like, piss in his open neck, you know what I mean, and stuff like that, and... Or or they took a dog and they cut it in half and then they attached the dog to, you know, um, a child's stomach or something like that to create some odd deformity. These were the sorts of six o'clock news situations. So they were like, maybe we could have a a hero that murders these people. Even just like the the, the humiliating and like kind of just uh, trauma of just getting mugged in the street, just like feeling completely disempowered and open and, you know, on the open in public. Is enough to like, you know, really just all of a sudden turn a key in how you look at societal problems. A hundred percent. So the miniseries. Oh no, you're talking about Circle of Blood, um, which is definitely worth reading. It is uh, a. It's kind of funny because all of the covers say uh, four part miniseries until yeah. the fifth issue, and then it was like part five of a five part miniseries. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird. 
typo on every issues cover it said it was a four-parter it was actually a five-parter this uh, premieres in january of 1986 by the way just to place this in time and it has castle being admitted to rikers island prison after which he is broken out by an anti-crime organization allowing him to war against crime all over the city and it had just a ton of intense elements that did not exist in a lot of other marvel comics there's a suicide. He bangs in this one. Yeah, he bangs. He bangs. There's suicide. There's the death of an innocent child. He bangs. And that's actually how Ricky Martin came up with uh, his big hit, She Bangs, She Bangs. He was reading that on the toilet one day, and it inspired him so much that he he stopped shitting. He cut himself off halfway and ran to his uh, desk and grabbed his quilled pin and and pinned those uh that chorus she she bangs she i mean he was living la vida loca back then you can't you know he was off the rails oh yeah dude he had to move a fucking mountain of cocaine out of the way just to write this shit down it was it was like god there's so much coke on this desk i can't even write this song lyric uh the way they got around (laughs) they kind of snuck under the radar was that the series was not advertised at all they just kind of quietly put it out there and hoped that comic fans would find it and they did and it's we, I, it's def. If you are like curious about Punisher lore and have not checked it out, like it's available on all the Kindle Comicsology things. It's very easy to get access to it. The art by Mike Zek is really good. It is very good comic art. It's a little bit mangled by like the old four color process they were using at the time. But if you buy the, uh, you know, if you buy the uh, trade paperback, you can see like the uncolored pages, and it is really breathtaking. Uh, it's also where uh, they introduce the idea of Jigsaw having like a mind-washed, fractured personality who dresses up like the Punisher sometimes. <laughs> Tons of great, uh, cool prison kills. R- yeah, and it established a lot of w- what the Punisher's character is, his modus operandi, the way he looks at his war against crime. Yeah, it it, it definitely took him out of uh, the shadow of other characters. Instead of standing as a counterbalance to a more idealistic hero. Now we're in his world. This is from his perspective. And his world would end up continuing. In 1987, he gets his own ongoing series under writer Mike Barron and artist Klaus Jansen, which would run for 104 issues. It would last until July of 1995 with two spinoff ongoing series, War Journal and War Zone, which ran for 80 issues and 41 issues on their own. I loved War Zone to bring it back up. Big fan of that one. I I read some like six parter or something like that. That was a war zone comic, and I was like really excited uh, about collecting each one of that that one arc. I can't. I have no idea what it was. I I don't even know if I still have the comics. But either way, War Zone just serves largely as a vehicle for John Romita Jr., who had returned to Marvel after a hiatus to really just do his thing with the art. There was also goofily enough the Punisher Armory, which was so weird, and I had a single issue of it that I absolutely regretted purchasing. I just wanted a Punisher comic that day, and I guess it was, it was the only one on the rack. They were going. We were at peak Punisher. It was Punisher yeah. fever. Everybody, you know, that's why he could support three books and a compendium of cool drawings of guns. Yeah, it's a fictional diary that had the slogan: "His thoughts, his feelings, his weapons." It's so <laughs> ridiculous. It's just a bunch of here. It's like here is a gun. This is. It's, it's so weird too because it's like real guns and they're breaking down like the act the price and the all this stuff of real of real guns which is amazing i think at this era is when they introduce i love this that like he has like kind of 
it's almost like a Power Ranger. There's like specific guns he'll use in specific situations. Uh, the ballistic knife. Ooh, the ballistic knife. <laughs> the Punisher in almost every 90s comic I ever read had uh, they would the villains would take away his guns or he would run out of ammo and it would all come down to this knife that he had in his pocket that was spring loaded <laughs> and he could shoot the blade of the knife. And that was his like last shot. And it would always hit the target and he would always win the day. I loved this from Wikipedia. I'm just going to read it verbatim. Through these series, the Punisher took on a pretty much every known criminal organization, including the Italian Mafia, the Russian Bratva, the Japanese Yakuza, the Colombian and Mexican drug cartels, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Chinese triads, Jamaican Yardies, the Irish mob, biker gangs, street gangs, gun-running militias, muggers, killers, rapists, psychopaths, violent racists, sadists, pedophiles, and corrupt city officials. And yet, not a single weather machine, death ray, or bank robbery. No, not at all. Uh, So, since he was the rare hero that killed, he didn't have a ton of reoccurring enemies, but you mentioned already Jigsaw. Definitely is the standout. We have to talk about him for a second here. Definitely one of Punisher's biggest nemeses. First appearing in The Amazing Spider-Man number 1,262. Jeez. And created by Lynn Wein, who was very popular for creating Swamp Thing. We've talked about Lynn Wein a lot in this uh, in our series, for sure. And artist Ross Andrew. Originally nicknamed Billy the Butte due to his good looks. However, that all changed when he was pushed through a glass window pane by the Punisher, which mangled his face. He has all these disgusting scars all over his face. Definitely watch Warzone for a great, great version of Jigsaw. An- uh, another nemesis for the Punisher was Kingpin. A little bit of a different relationship there, because at the end of the day, Kingpin and Spider-Man, they had to keep them as the ultimate nemesis for each other. And but... Kingpin and Daredevil, and Kingpin uh-huh. and... Anytime a superhero needs some like organized uh, institutional crime, they got to throw in yeah. Mr. Wilson Fisk. So it makes sense that he would brush up against the Punisher, but at the same time, they couldn't... They had to be careful because the that's what's so fun about the Punisher. He's so dangerous. I mean, he could just kill away like this very important villain. And they and it's so funny that I feel like the creators have to go in and almost protect the villain from the Punisher. That's how badass he is, dude. You should totally get a hat with one of his skulls on it. Ugh. Uh, but either way, by 1995, the Punisher titles were declining in popularity causing Marvel to cancel all three with a brief attempt at a relaunch that didn't really go anywhere. First of all, you have to realize him having three of his own titles Mm -hmm. at any given time is insane. Like, you know, we're talking a lot of big hitters at this point only had one comic running of their own. So to have three plus a diary or something like the X-Men where there's Mm -hmm. like 800 members that you can play around with. But this was just all Punisher, all the time, yeah. all growly, all like, you know, how many times can he get cornered and then jump up from behind a car with an M60? Like, how many right. times can, uh, you know, a crying woman be like, like, at what cost, Frank? At what cost? It's not going to bring him back. And he's like, it's not about bringing him back. It's about taking them away. I mean, yeah, it definitely was too much for too long, probably. But also, we have to remember this was during the, the bust yeah. of the comics industry when they just got way too oversaturated. The whole thing just kind of fell apart here in the mid to late 90s. So it is what it is. I loved reading, though, about in 1998, there was the Marvel oh, Knights. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, one, okay, wait. Um, so when you talked about the failed uh, attempt to save the Punisher, yeah. uh, two big things happen. 
number one, there's a three-issue plot arc where the Punisher escapes from prison and then undergoes plastic surgery to look like a black man. <laughs> and it's Black Punisher. Oh, my God, dude. He teams up with Luke Cage to try and, like, uh, beat up some uh, drug dealers. And then somehow they just, it's clear editorial was like, whoops, never mind. We made a mistake. Uh, <laughs> the plastic surgery wears off and he just becomes white again. Oh, my God, bro. I had no idea about that one, dude. That's so funny. Another dumb three-issue uh, character turn, which I, I posted this on my Twitter. You can find it. Um, in 1996, there's a big kind of deal where he is brainwashed into killing Nick Fury for some reason. I didn't read mm. all these issues, but he starts growing a shitty 90s uh, ponytail. He looks like just like a, he looks like a music producer in black tights, and it's just cool long hair Punisher. Still the same Frank Castle, still being like, my family. <laughs> but, still, neither of these things are as ridiculous as the thing I was about to talk about. Which 1998, is my friend. There was, there was a Marvel Knights imprint under artist and editor Joe Quesada, who handpicked creative teams for gritty, street-level comics titles to try and reinvigorate their franchises with edgier fare and to experiment and do all this stuff, which would end up leading to the Ennis Dylan revival. But before that, ooh, we got a doozy. Christopher Golden and Tom Snigowski's Punisher, or as I call it, the Spawning. Uh, they no, had they were Frank- uh, they were chasing specifically <laughs> Vertigo books. Yeah, well, also Spawn. This is Spawn. Doctor Strange uh, got a spooky, weird thing going on. Uh, Ghost mm-hmm. Rider got a weird, spooky thing going on. They were trying to do basically Neil Gaiman Marvel heroes that were like darker and magic and violent and goofy. And so, yeah, oh, get into so it. So Frank is resurrected as a ghost and recruited by angels to hunt down demons using magic machine guns. This, by the way, and then the ghost was apparently his guardian angel who was asleep on the job the day that his family got killed. That's yes. an element of it as well. He's got like glowing eyes. He's He has a magic, as I said, machine gun and a magic trench coat. Jake, that's Spawn. the magic trench. So he would pull in his magic <laughs> trench Spawn. coat and get a mad whatever magic gun. It would be either yeah. a magic Uzi, a magic flamethrower, a magic grenade launcher. But specifically, the guns looked not like real guns because I think by that time people were sensitive about that. His main villain was this spooky demon that was uh, the idea was that his entire career as the Punisher, he was actually fueling this demon with power, and now he had to correct that mistake. Like, literally, the demon had a Punisher skull as his face, and that's why he chose that logo. It was, like, all tied into each other. And it's <laughs> referred to this as Ghostbusters Punisher, because it really was, like, supernatural. And for all the goofiness, for all the weirdness, it sold great. People loved really? it. Or not to say that people loved it, but it was such a swerve for such an established character with such an established fan base that I think people hate Reddit. In masses, just to see how, what the fuck they were doing with this guy. That's so funny, dude. But either way, what's good about this, though, is the Punisher gets associated with Marvel Knights, the mm-hmm. Marvel Knights imprint, which is how, or which is where, rather, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon end up taking over the character. Garth Ennis, an Irish comics writer that gained popularity with his Judge Dread run in the anthology magazine 2000 AD, uh, but yet it was writing for DC Comics Hellblazer that paired him up with Steve Dillon. Hellblazer is a book concerning the Alan Moore created character John Constantine as a supporting character for the Swamp Thing getting his own run. 
The two paired up nicely one night at a get-together, Innes said, after everyone else had passed out, we sat up till dawn and killed off a bottle of Jameson, talking about what we wanted to do in comics, what we thought could be done with them, what the medium was for. I can recall a sort of mutual, oh yes, you, you're the one, you get it. This was to pay off handsomely in the years to come. And together, they rocked the comics world with the funny, violent, and epic Preacher series. That is the series that got me back into comic books in college. Ennis was an avid reader of war comics as a kid. He did not really dig the superhero stuff. He really, really kind of hated the superhero stuff. And is generally more drawn to grounded protagonists. And this is what Ennis has to say on why he likes the Punisher. I think it's the brilliant simplicity of the character. He reminds me so much of the characters I grew up on. I've said before that he sometimes seems like a British comics character accidentally born on the wrong side of the pond. Essentially, he's a gun gunfighter rather than a superhero. And being one step closer to the real world as a result, he's just the character you want when you're exploring the nastier side of human existence. He even did a one-shot called Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe, where Castle takes all of the heroes and the villains out who have, like, superpowers, which I think is kind of amazing. So the 12-issue miniseries, we've already talked about it uh, a, couple co- a couple times already. Welcome back, Frank. Is released in the year 2000 under the Marvel Knights imprint. Man, just the cover alone of that first issue, you just see mm-hmm. him. He looks real. He looks like a real guy. They removed the white gloves. They got rid of some of the more hero-y aspects of his costume. And you're just like, damn, this is just a real-ass, scary-ass dude. <laughs> and that works well for them. Very, very well for them. It's kind of amazing because uh, that run definitely inspired the both movies. Yeah. Like... Uh, Huge. Ennis gave uh, the Punisher like a nice little cast of supporting characters that play heavily in the 2004 movie. And they also give him an insanely twisted sense of violent humor that is much more established in uh, Warzone. I don't, it's I like I said I already gushed about it. It's very enjoyable. Yeah, I think I think if, I think we're both in agreement that if we were to recommend for you to go read some Punisher after this, pick up Welcome Back, Frank. It, it's twelve issues, so it's nice and tied up in a little bow. It's not ongoing and all that sort of thing. And it it just comes it just enters the room swinging and it, it doesn't let you go and especially if you're a fan of the preacher and Ennis's other stuff I mean you're gonna love this thing it really is just the I think this fantastic I think it is the high point at least when it comes to the comic books of the entire franchise uh, I have a story from the uh, Ennis wrote an introduction to the complete collection of Punisher Max where in 1988 he had been he had gone to a British comic convention And on a panel about violence in comics, a couple of other members of the panel stated quite plainly with that breathtaking blend of condescension and arrogance that Brits always thinks plays well with Americans, that the Punisher was not worthy of consideration in this discussion. They were were talking on a different level. There was no need to waste time on the Punisher, so they could return to more serious matters, please. And these two weren't exactly making war and peace themselves, darlings of the indi- of the British indie scene, though they were. And partly because of their bloody awful manners, I found myself thinking, hmm, that's why I decided to take a proper look at the Punisher. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned Punisher Max, by the way. This is the ongoing series that happened after Welcome yeah. Back, Frank, in 2004. 
And it's it's called Punisher Max because it's under the Max imprint, which was established in the early 2000s for adult-only material after Marvel broke with the Comics Code Authority and established their own rating system. Punisher's look was modified here, as I said, getting rid of the white gloves, adding a black trench coat to the skull shirt with combat trousers and black combat boots. Another grounding touch was to not have a floating timeline for the character, but instead having him age in real time, with him having been active for 30 years at this point and maintaining his Vietnam War veteran past. And having him be a little bit older kind of gives that Dark Knight Return vibe a little bit. Like, you got this older, grittier dude. There's something about that 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 is, again, just very thrilling, I think, much more so than, like, a young guy coming right out from the war. It's a guy, a guy with his fair share of scars, in other words, from being Punisher for so long. And especially in those early stories, a lot of this, a lot of what happens takes place outside of the Punisher. It's kind of like uh, Ennis really relishes in exploring how all these different forces from American uh, CIA mm-hmm. agents to uh, old enemies, uh, you know, various mafias and gangsters and, you know, old IRA operatives, just, you know, exploring all these different topics with the Punisher kind of getting thrown into the mix and disrupting what Ennis saw as, you know, kind of shitty behavior. Uh, I, the story the where they introduced Barracuda, which is like pretty much a one-to-one commentary on the Enron scandal, you know, a bunch of rich shitheads fucking around and like basically through fraud manipulating the power grid in Florida uh, to their own means and the kind of violence and depravity that that bears out. Like, Ennis is really kind of having fun exploring these awful people and using the Punisher as an avatar of comeuppance once all the pieces are in place. Yeah, for sure. And this is Ennis's general philosophy for the character. It's that he, quote, sees the world in very black and white terms. He solves his problems with utter finality and that his response to any problem, when in doubt, hit back hard. Uh, yeah, never, never cower. Always just like c- guns blazing at all times. Never fucking around. So this is where you're gonna, you're gonna have to help me here, Jake. Cause it gets so muddy after this, and I don't know if there's any high points after the Ennis run and Punisher match. Well, no. Uh, let's see. So in 2006, we got a new War Journal series that took place during the Civil War event and brought back superheroes and powers to the world of the Punisher. Of course, Civil War. Got its own, uh, was it Captain America Civil War? They represented that arc in the films, I so believe. it's less that superheroes were brought back into the world of the Punisher. And because part of the reason why Ennis did the Punisher for as long as he did is it was literally the only way he could do, he could work with Marvel. He was sick mm-hmm. to death of superhero stories and they were like, and he was like, if you want me, I will write this character and there will not be any like in the Punisher yeah. Max, there will not be any acknowledgement of this shit. And you just let me loose. And they were like, OK, but with Civil War, they made the decision and the Punisher kind of took a hiatus for the most part from the proceedings of the Marvel Universe as well. Right. And with Civil War, they brought back like little white gloves, white boots, superhero Punisher into the Marvel Universe. And uh, it was kind of refreshing. It was kind of a change of pace. We hadn't seen this version of the character who is an effective foil and an effective kind of counterbalance to superheroes because he lives in that world. He also fights crime, but he crosses lines and he has an entirely different ethical framework. And it, uh, you know, 
the contra, you know, there's a brutal fight between him and Captain America that is like iconic from that uh, crossover storyline. Uh, yeah, it was about a, a superhero registration act. It had bled out from the pages of Captain America. And it was one of the, you know, Marvel had kind of gotten back into the swing of big events. I forget if this, I think, I forget if it's before or after Secret Invasion, but mm. his return was heralded. People loved the miniseries. People loved his appearance in the big crossover event. Then once like Norman Osborn got involved and there was like Dark Avengers and Thunderbolts and all these other things, Frank Castle was back in a good old fashioned anti-hero uh, role in the Marvel Universe. He was always a part of like, Suicide Squad kind of teams. He was always like just this wild card that you could throw into any group and he would like stir up trouble, make a good speech and kill somebody out of the blue. So there there are good stories, even though this isn't cool off on his own uh, larger than life crime right. uh, realism Punisher. So Ennis leaves the main series and Punisher Max starts up in January of 2010, running for 22 issues and one special which pits Punisher against Kingpin, Bullseye, and Elektra. So uh, already we've got these other, you know, especially like Bullseye and Elektra. Written by Jason Aaron with Steve Dillon still as the artist, but it's very different art style from the uh, Ennis Punisher. Then you have a lot more comic booky looking, which is very indicative. Then you have 2011's The Punisher, which would end up retconning his backstory to have been in the War on Terror as opposed to the Vietnam War. That was the biggest thing I could glean from the 2011 Punisher, I feel like the the Punisher main series. I don't know. It, is it? I, I don't know what. It, yeah, it didn't. I didn't get a lot out of. Wait, was this Rick Remender? Yeah, 2011's... Oh, maybe it was. I don't have who wrote it. In there. the yeah, the uh, the Jason Aaron series got a lot of good reviews at the time. People really liked having Steve Dillon back as artist, and they kind of did some Kingpin origins thing. That, oh, okay. you know, again, more, uh, if there was anybody else besides Ennis who writes larger-than-life scumbags, like, bumping up against each other, it is Jason Aaron. I loved Scalped when that was running. Like, he's a genuinely talented writer. And then Remender uh, had a good run as well, but he's most well-known for uh, the one transformation even more shocking than Angel or Black Guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that is Frankencastle. <laughs> You also have a Punisher series in 2014 that takes him to sunny Los Angeles following a drug trail while being targeted by a military hit squad. Then there's also all new Punisher and Civil War II Kingpin that pits him, of course, against the Kingpin again. That's where we're at with the comics. Again, welcome back, Wait, Frank. did you not hear me say Frankencastle? <laughs> at one point, as part of one of the many crossovers that are happening, Frank Castle gets eviscerated by uh, Dokken, Wolverine's son, who is working for Osborn, Norman Osborn, as head of Hammer, Fake Shield. And he gets sewed back together by Morbius, the vampire, the living vampire, <laughs> as a Frankenstein. I, I, just, I blocked this out. I just blocked and it out. And he is called Frankencastle. <laughs> and people, lo people hated how well this worked. Because now he was a monster killer. And he was this hulking, sewn-together dude with, like, literal bolts sticking out of him. That's amazing. Eventually, he was brought back to life with the Moonstone. But, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a huge turn for the character. That was also, like, <laughs> praised for its what-the-fuckness. It's fun, because you really, it, with such a gritty, grounded character, when you do stuff, like, swing for the fences, stuff like that, it really does pop 
a lot harder than most other heroes. So that is quite funny. What is also funny are the films. Let's get into it. Starting oh. with Punisher 1989. The direct-to-video. <laughs> direct-to-video Punisher was not supposed to be direct-to-video, but things happen. Uh, this was Boaz Yakin's first screenplay, who also wrote stuff like Remember the Titans. Uh, he was just coming out of college. This was one of three directing credits for Mark Goldblatt. However, oh my God, Mark yeah, Goldblatt! Yeah, you mentioned. I saw your tweet. This Holy he has the craziest shit. resume as an editor. This he was may, way more of a prolific editor, doing stuff like Terminator Two, Starship Troopers, Bad Boys, Armageddon. Like crazy resume. That, that's Not a, but a, like those are the hits. He also yeah, did like notorious like what the fuck flops like 2010's The Wolfman. Uh-huh. Chappie, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yes. Uh, X-Men, The Last Stand. G-Force? Fucking wow. G-Force. You remember the one where Zach Galifianakis is a spy gerbil? <laughs> <laughs> or no, guinea pig. They were guinea pigs. Uh, Pearl Harbor. Like, this Showgirls. He edited Showgirls. What the fuck is this guy's career? I think I remember seeing this movie on like a Sunday afternoon, you know, as mm-hmm. as you do when they get thr- thrown up on television, and be like, "Where was this? By where? What? There's a Punisher movie? Like you wouldn't even know about it because mm-hmm. it was supposed to be released in theaters. However, the production company ran into financial difficulties. They had to sell off what is now Lionsgate, who uh, sell it off to what is now Lionsgate, who released it direct to video. Dolph Lundgren, as I mentioned already, played Frank Castle was. Pretty early in his film career, but at this point he had played Rocky's Russian nemesis in Rocky IV and He-Man in Masters of the Universe. And that this movie is just a time capsule, dumb, schlocky 80s action movie. It's like, you know, it's shitty commando. It's mm-hmm. it it makes a lot of sense that it would get made around this time when it was a lot harder, when superhero movies were like not the cool thing to do per se but you could get away with it with Punisher because he was essentially just Rambo. So it's just like, here's more Rambo. Here's just the Dolph Lundgren Rambo. I remember a couple of things from this movie. One, that uh, it makes no sense because the core plot crux of the movie is that he teams up with Italian gangsters, the very people who killed his family, because at least they're preferable to the Japanese Yakuza, who are the real <laughs> villains of the movie. A lot of the, there's no he doesn't wear a skull on his chest like once in a while he has like a little skull on the end of his like uh, hunting knife and there's like a little he doesn't feel very superhero-y. He spends a lot of time in the sewers. There's just a lot of Punisher in the sewers. Uh, there's a near pornographic scene where he uh, cauterizes a bullet wound with a knife that he held under like a torch. And he's just like, oh, oh, it's very <laughs> horny. It's a very horny cauterizing gun wound scene. Yikes. And there's a, it's a very gifable moment where in the grand finale of the movie, the Punisher and his cool mafia friend are, uh, you know, blitzing the Yakuza headquarters. They open up a sliding, you know, wooden door and uh, kind of find themselves in front of a bunch of samurai who all draw their swords at them <laughs> and they just, just mow them down with Uzis. Of course. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's move on to the Punisher 2004. Jake doing the Lord's work watching that one for the for the two of us. I thought it would be insightful. I thought there would be something of value to be gained from it. And it is um it is not a it's it's just not effective. It's just another it's, it's just another in a series of really boring origin story superhero movies that were going on at that time. And that was what I gleaned from reading about it was like, this is where the skull came from. And this is where the this came from and, you know and it's just doing this whole it's like doing all this work to over explain what where stuff originated for the you know for the superhero to be created and at the end of the day it's like just not going to be very interesting especially for the punisher that it's really more about the vigilante justice stuff it's more about the uber violence and the- it is hilarious that they had to up the stakes in the beginning because um unlike every other punisher origin story where you know, it's just him and his family in Central Park getting caught in crossfire. In this movie, the instigating event is a team of armed mercenaries go to Puerto Rico and gun down his entire family reunion, including his wife's entire family and his entire family, <laughs> as they methodically just walk through a beach just shooting old ladies in the face. It is <laughs> fucking crazy. Uh, the soundtrack is also does not fit. Like when you think of a Punisher soundtrack, you think of driving guitars and like gnarling industrial noises. And this one, it's literally like da 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 ba ba ba. Like, it's Jurassic it's, Park. Kinda. It's very <laughs> generic. Super. Uh, they it utilize a ton of Garth Ennis's characters. You know, like mm. I said, Spacker, Dave, Bumpo, and Joan are in there. But they're like they turn Rebecca Romaine Stamos plays Joan. Mm. And they try and make this like romantic thing happen, which is nowhere near how it works in the comics. Mm-hmm. They do. There's a couple of key scenes where they do make it work. Thomas Jane is all over the place with his acting. He pops his shirt off constantly <laughs> just for like, like clear. This one's for the ladies kind uh. of deal. The fight with the Russian, the, Kevin Nash, the WWE wrestler shows Hell up yeah. as the Russian. And that scene's amazing. Uh, but yeah, it's John Travolta doesn't underutilizing John Travolta, who should be foaming at the mouth going full yeah. gonzo uh, uh, face-off John Travolta. In a Punisher movie, yes. We don't get that. It's very disappointing. It's just very, like, it's just, yeah, it's just, you don't need to watch it. It It's just not that. It's nothing. Well, just to place it in the lexicon, place it in history, because it actually, the way the rights get moved around does tell a bit of a story of the Punisher Back in 2000, Marvel made a long-term agreement with Artisan Entertainment to turn 15 of their characters into film and TV franchises. Punisher was Marvel's first major independent release as an equity owner, meaning that they would give out the character to lower-budget fare in exchange for a financial stake. It was essentially like, here, just take it. Just try to make money off of it. We don't know what to do with it. Jonathan Hensley, known for writing Jumanji, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Armageddon, so again, all, all big blockbuster hitters, was signed on to write and direct. This would actually end up being his directorial debut. His script, as you mentioned already, based on Garth Ennis's 12-issue run, Welcome Back, Frank, and Punisher Year One. Hensley said, I told Marvel that I didn't just want to do a revenge story, that I wanted to do the mother of all revenge stories. I wanted to ramp everything up. And the script was heavily inspired by Shakespeare's Othello. Uh, you also have Thomas Jane playing Frank Castle. He, I like him a lot. He's a great actor. He was... Uh, known really at this time just for his supporting roles in films like The Crow and Boogie Nights. 
The budget was half what Hensley wanted, and the shooting schedule was incredibly short as well, just 52 days. So most of his original script had to be rewritten and edited to make it work. Again, Lionsgate buys Artisan during filming and distributed the film, weirdly enough. So weirdly enough, in 1989, Lionsgate ended up buying that Punisher and then goes and buys Artisan during the making of this Punisher very strange coincidence. I mean, for Lionsgate back at the time, I'm sure. I, mean, I feel like every blockbuster had at least a dozen copies of that Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. For sure. The movie did not do so hot in theaters, but it did kill it in DVD sales. And that's why they were able to make Warzone, essentially. There was a planned sequel with Hensley writing a first draft of the script, but it sat in development hell for years until... Jane was still attached... Uh, that is uh, Thomas Jane, but drops out when a new script was submitted and it was just not to his liking. Apparently the script was for this Punisher sequel was just bad, bad, bad. Every new script was worse than the next or worse than the last. Just It was just a rough time. And with director John Dahl dropping out due to bad script issues, Lexi Alexander took over. Alexander is a former World Karate Association world champion and director of the football hooligan film Green Street Hooligans, a film I would actually like to watch having seen now Punisher Warzone. I think the thing I was most looking forward to about doing this episode was watching Punisher Warzone, a film I had been meaning to check out because I heard it was absolutely, completely batshit insane. Like, howl at the movie television screen with mm. laughter, with giddy glee over a man getting his entire face punched in, you know, stuff like that. Like a parkour dude getting exploded in midair, so, you know, stuff like that. Just just a never-ending series of ludicrous violence that is just so eye-popping. You cannot look away from the screen. Also, compared, and compared to the 2004 Punisher, well-shot, well-plotted-out, well-done violence. Everything, like, just the... The, w- the way they construct each thing, just it, it gets that visceral reaction. I re- Oh, God. One of the first things that happens, the, one of the first things the Punisher does in this movie is snap an old woman's neck. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, there are just tons of like, the if I could sum up uh, uh, the int- watching the movie in a single noise, it would be, oh, <laughs> oh, just constantly that sound coming out of your mouth. So you the it. reason why, though, is because Lexi Alexander, initially she turns this offer down. She doesn't want to make this movie. But then she picks up Punisher Max and starts reading the comic books. And says, you know what? This is going to be crazy. I'm just going to make this movie as close to this Garth Ennis guy's vision as humanly possible. And, you know, let's let's just let's make this like an 80s era action film throwback. Let's go balls to the wall and just make something absolutely fun and ridiculous. Uh, Ray Stevenson was chosen to play the Punisher. He's best known as playing Titus Pulo in the TV show Rome, as well as Volstagg in the Thor films. When Marvel sent Alexander a box of Punisher comics, they printed it with only three colors. And that comes into play in terms of the vision of the film. <laughs> if you look at the lighting of the film, you'll, you'll understand why. Alexander said, What I got wasn't actually the real interpretation of what the comic books looked like. I got the fucking cheap copies. So when I looked at that, I said to my DP... We should go with this, stick to the three-color mode, and make it look like the comic book. It was only later, I think, someone on Kevin Feige's office said, oh, we just printed them in the cheapest manner possible. (laughs) So the whole reason why there's this weird tri-color tone 
look to the film is because that she was given the a cheap printing of the comics, which I think is hilarious. And uh, I just all these little elements. One one of the funny things is like everybody talks about the parkour guys scene mm-hmm. in the film where the guy gets exploded uh, by a rocket launcher. It's so funny. It's the timing on it's amazing. And apparently that came from the producers being like, don't put parkour guys in this movie. <laughs> Everyone's doing parkour guy stuff. It's in every movie right now. Everybody's doing it. Everyone's sick of it. So she's like, all right, fuck it. I'll put them in and I'll just like explode one of them. I'll just destroy one of them like hilariously. Just stuff like that. She just she just went completely crazy. The violence is so absurd. And uh, it, it just ended up being this very unique, phenomenal, good, bad movie. It's truly breathtaking. It's sad that it wasn't received well. You know, people had come to expect, even at this early stage, what a superhero movie was. Mm. And not in, even though it was a popular comic, none of people were fluent in Garth Ennis's work to like know that when the Punisher like throws someone off a rooftop, impales him on a wrought iron gate, and then snaps his neck by l- jumping off the same roof and landing <laughs> on him like a surfboard. <laughs> That that's just shot for shot from the comic. Yeah, that's the thing. So one reviewer said that Lex Alexander should be put in jail for her violent visions. And uh, she was just like, I just took from the source material. This is what was in the comic. And it's so true. I mean, Innis' stuff is oh, so ridiculous. Like At some uh, premiere, at some screenings, they would actually like print little, uh, basically hand-copied zines of panels from the comic to be like, see, this is from, we're not just making this up. (laughs) We did it right. So though she battled with Lionsgate over the final product, Alexander stands behind her her film. She said, it came at a price, I would say, but I made the film I wanted on the screen. I think personally, in my opinion, it would have been very dangerous to put a compromise on the screen for my own career and for the promises I made to these actors who I talked into joining the film. I don't really care that it was an uphill battle. I'm glad with what's on the screen and... I know I maybe I should promote some other podcast on some other network, but honestly, check her out on the podcast. How did this get made? It is so great. They sit down with her. It's, it's a great podcast, but they sit down with her and just talk about the whole movie making process. It's so funny. It's so much fun. And I love Punisher Warzone. Again, if you're going to watch anything to a company, welcome back, Frank. Wisdom the Bruiser highly, highly suggests Punisher Warzone for a Friday evening's fair. She is a pip online. She uh, was a vocal. uh, She was way early on the Me Too stuff in Hollywood. She was outing people and like burning bridges left and right because it was what she thought was necessary. She has since like kind of become one of the creative forces behind like the CW uh, Flashverse Supergirlverse where she does a lot of work over there. And so I'm glad for that. Because, yeah, no, Punisher Warzone is art. Punisher Warzone is true cinema. I love it. And I also did enjoy, and I will, I may keep watching the Punisher TV series. And it's something I'd been meaning to get around to. It is on Netflix, of course. Uh, The character's film rights were transferred back from Lionsgate to Marvel in 2013. And in 2015, John Bernthal was announced as Frank Castle to join the second season of The Daredevil Show on Netflix. 
Bernthal was had already made a name for himself in prestige, gritty action TV with his role in The Walking Dead on AMC. And a year later, they were in deep development on a spinoff for Castle. I will also just say about John Bernthal, uh, A, I think he makes a fantastic Punisher. B, uh, he was on the Wolf, in The Wolf of Wall Street with our friend Henry <laughs> Zabrowski. And Henry talked about just how, like, they got along really well. He was, like, a really swell guy, like, a, one of the... One of the friendlier actors on the set and just just a stand-up dude all around which i liked hearing so definitely support this tv series steve lightfoot was named as executive producer and showrunner coming off of the fantastic gory thriller show hannibal so he knows how to do violence he knows how to do some fun action stuff and the filming happened in nyc brooklyn and astoria queens so i recognized a bunch of locations I, I started it. I think I I may just follow through with it because it is a fun kind of turn your brain off Punisher series. And I think they definitely nail the tone and all those kinds of things. And it makes for a, just a solid Netflix series. So to end, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is yep. uh, kind of the, one of the reasons why we kind of settled on this topic at this particular time. And that is the Punisher as an icon for law enforcement and the military. And it's a very, very kind of just troubling roundabout way that like what was one symbol, one icon can kind of shift into another. Just to spell it out, the skull has been used with a blue stripe running down it to be a symbol of the pro-police Blue Lives Matter movement, which is a counter movement to the Black Lives Matter movement. I found a really good comic actually by mm-hmm. a guy named Nate Powell called About Face. Did you Yeah, I've read it and it's well? it really lays out almost not just uh, the Punisher logo, but the the kind of the Punisher aesthetic and like the entire outgrouping of like what it's come to symbolize in America. And the I, the evolving iconography of the military and of law enforcement as time has gone by, because Nate Powell was a uh, son of a military fa- father, a father in, in the U.S. Armed Forces who was super into G.I. Joe, who was curious about how, you know, the difference between the uniformity of the army and the army eventually evolving to, like, having the long hair and the sunglasses. I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, we make fun of it now, exactly what what these guys all look like. Like, they all have the same sunglasses. They all drive the same, like, black armored pickup truck, yeah. pickup truck thing. They all, you know, they've got this... You know, and a lot of it's about concealing identities so they can do dirty shit and not have to answer to anyone. A lot of it is about lawlessness and taking the law into your own hands in this way. And uh, Nate Powell posits that the use of the logo trickled down from the, let's say, fashion adorned by special forces given allowances to divert from the military standard. These are like special forces. Green Beret, SEAL teams. Paramilitary. So uh, this standard of dress, including long facial hair and sunglasses, which also help, as I said, conceal identity. And this trickled down to law enforcement and private security because a lot of times when people leave the military, these are the types of jobs they end up moving towards when they get back to the U.S. Well, it's it's not even happenstance. Uh, You know, Chris Kyle, American Sniper, uh, the book, the movie was a huge phenomenon. It's it was one of the it was the biggest movie when it came out. And it was specifically Chris Kyle's unit in Iraq during the Battle of Fallujah, or the Second Battle of Fallujah. Please, military historians, I, I'm very ignorant. You are correct. You're probably correct, whatever you want to correct me on. And from his book, this is actually the quote. 
We all thought what the Punisher did was cool. He righted wrongs. He killed bad guys. He made wrongdoers fear him. That's what we were all about. So we adopted his symbol, a skull, and made it our own with some modifications. We spray painted it on our Hummers and our body armor and our helmets and all our guns. And we spray painted it on every building or wall we could. We wanted people to know we're here and we want to fuck with you. It was our version of PSYOPs. You see us? We're the people kicking your ass. Fear us because we will kill you, motherfucker. You are bad. We are badder. And it's like, yes, Frank Castle does not, you know, is a spirit of vengeance. He is a spooky man who does not care about right or wrong and is willing to kill and get things done. And, you know, the people that like the people that need to feel that adrenaline rush, who need to feel that sense of power over life and death want to be the Punisher. They don't want to fill out paperwork. They don't want to adhere to conventions. They don't want to have to answer to people. They want to just go out there, be the badass, be feared, and dominate. And that's ideal. You know, nobody, like, normal, I'm saying a lot of things out of turn here, but normal people who have, like, a basic sense of right and wrong don't want other people to be like that. Yeah. They would like that, you know, we have this illusion that like when we uh, commit to violence overseas or when we enlist uh, police power, we're doing it ethically, that we're doing it uh, not out of just an innate bloodlust, that we are doing this with uh, by the proper methods, the humane way. And yet the people we enlist to do that aren't interested in that. And most times everyone from like, the mayor of a crime-riddled town to our own government uh, with interests overseas really need those people to act as vigilantes to enforce that will. And so that just, like, when given the choice between a clean-cut, you know, soldier with with the buzz cut and the clean-shaven face uh, in a uniform who's just following orders and is a tool of civilian leadership, or the sunglass bearded operator who is his own man who like takes life and gives justice or the local police officer who's patrolling the streets and is the thin blue line between life and death. You know, the Punisher iconography is who they want to be. And it's, as you said, as people from uh, the war on terror entered police forces and as the iconography of the operator came back home, uh, the Punisher logo came with it. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where police departments, uh, grossly enough, the Milwaukee Police Department ripped from the headlines, just emblazoned the thin blue line Punisher skull on yeah. the hoods of their cars. Uh, in upstate New York, police departments would put decals on their cars. And then it starts getting marketed. And then there's TV. T- you know, and that's when capitalism comes into play. So you've got T-shirts with the... Punisher logo with the blue line and being sold all over the place and and this thing getting spread more and more and more to it, it, you know as the, as the police are becoming more and more militarized like it's not just the logo it's the weapons armor military vehicles being incorporated into the police which is just a very terrifying thing there's also this it's was, a little uh, bit of a, the Calvin Peeing uh syndrome because like yes, this is a character owned by a corporate, owned by a creative entity that does not want this to be the case. But it's already kind of just been taken by a by a separate community to represent all these other things. And there's really no way for them to like kind of stop it at this point. You know, yeah. Bill Watterson doesn't want Calvin peeing on Ford logos. Marvel doesn't want the Punisher skull to represent. 
total violent authority of the police. Uh, in fact, you know, several creators at Marvel have gone out of their way to fight this. Uh, there was a Punisher comic in like 2019 where the Punisher literally like rips the decal off a cop car, rips into shreds and be like, you guys want to be me, but I'm outside the law. You're supposed to protect the law. You're like the whole point is that you're not me. If you want a yeah. hero, look up Captain America. He'd love to have you. Yeah. Jerry Conway, the the actual creator of the Punisher, has gone so far as to uh, seek out artists to create pro Black Lives Matter artwork with Punisher skull motifs to try and like take back the symbol for the cause of like human decency to mixed results. Uh, the mixed results being the top results on YouTube are just like uh, reactionaries being like Jerry Conway inserts politics into what the Punisher. This is a quote from Jerry Conway. To me, it's disturbing whenever I see authority figures embracing Punisher iconography because the Punisher represents a failure of the justice system. So when cops put Punisher skulls on their cars or members of the military wear Punisher skull patches, they're basically siding with an enemy of the system. He is an outlaw. He is a criminal. Police should not be embracing a criminal as their symbol. Yeah, it's very disturbing. And this is from Nate Powell's comic. I think it describes these people perfectly as aggrieved, insecure white Americans with an exaggerated sense of sovereignty have officially declared their existence as above the law, consistent with a long tradition of acting and living above it, propped up by apolitical consumer trends normalizing impact, and that we should be very afraid of these individuals, and we should be very aware. That is the other nefarious thing about it, is the Punisher The Punisher skull is a pop culture symbol. Uh, throughout the history of the of militaries, like all the way back from like the Prussian cavalry all the way to Air Force regiments now, the Death's Head, the, you know, the Jolly Roger, the Grinning Skull is all over the place. And it is appropriately, you know, a stark black and white fascist symbol yeah. of like intent to harm. But because we live in the age of, uh, you know, the Avengers... It can kind of, it gets a kind of a, you know, if I had the SS skull on my pickup truck, people would be like, that's a fucking Nazi crazy fucker. But because it's a Punisher skull, like, no, he just loves comic books. I'm exaggerating, but am I? Right, exactly. And uh, I think that just about sums it up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gross and I hate it. And I love the Punisher. So I I want my character back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. All right, that about sums up our episode on The Punisher. But before we go, I've got a couple of Patreon shout-outs. Thank you so much for donating, for for patronizing our $25 tier. And uh, here we go, the first of our Patreon shout-outs. Very exciting stuff. Our first one is from Mitchell. Shout-out to Holden and Jake for bringing back PlayStation Network. Shout-outs! Shout-out to the OGs, BirdLuger420, and ScoobyDuber911. Shout-out to Claire Walters, who I met at the Chicago Whizbrew outside after the show. I was too stoned to get your number and slowly faded into the night. And finally, <laughs> finally shout-outs to something, I guess, Sot86. I don't really play video games. And Entrapment on Twitch. Holden, they just, oh! Can't wait until the secret message is delivered on the podcast and we all turn into lizard pus to create Holden final form i'm so excited next shout out might make me cry from justin i just want to give a shout out to my son jace he has several brain tumors and last week we got the news that they've shrunk down to almost nothing you guys are what we listen to on our four hour round trip we take once a week for his chemo thanks for being the best podcast justin uh that's incredibly i don't i'm gonna cry if i talk about it i'm just happy we could help 
So. This is way more affecting than the other messages we get about people being like, yeah, it's really cool. I listen to you while playing Minecraft for eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been our Patreon shout outs for this month. Maybe just this week. We'll see who signs up. $25 tier is there. The $15 tier. Join us for our study sessions every Sunday at 5 p.m. We go for around an hour and a half, two hours. We just... Essentially, this last time we watched Punisher Warzone together, it was a lot of fun. And we just kind of go over the topic that we're researching that week. And for $5 a month, you get a bonus episode from Jake and I every single week where we talk about the video games we're playing and things like that. Stuff we're watching and general discussion topics like all this fucking crazy Twitch drama that's been happening lately. Either way, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. There you have it. And if you'd like to follow me further, twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. Check me out. Uh, I'm streaming Monday, Tuesday, and Friday nights. It's a lot of fun. Love when you guys come by and say hello who listen to the show. And Jake? Uh, well said, Holden. All I can say in return is follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung and keep in touch with all of my latest research revelations and uh, wet, stinky fart thoughts. <laughs> there you have it. All right. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.